You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Nation states exploit the WinRAR vulnerability. Criminals leak more stolen 23andMe data. QR codes as a risk. NSA and partners offer anti-phishing guidance. A Ukrainian hacktivist auxiliary takes down Trigona privateers. Hacktivism and influence operations remain the major cyber features of the Hamas-Israeli war. On today's Threat Vector, David Moulton speaks with Kate Nonheim, Cyber Risk Management Director at Unit 42, about the new cybersecurity regulations introduced by the SCC. Our own Rick Howard talks with Jen Miller-Osborne and Adam Pennington about the 10th anniversary of AttackCon and the epistemology of open-source intelligence. Tweets, TikToks, Instagrams. They're not necessarily ground truth. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Intel Briefing for Thursday, October 19th, 2023. Google's Threat Analysis Group warns that several government-backed threat actors are exploiting a vulnerability in WinRAR that was patched on August 2nd. The flaw allows attackers to execute arbitrary code when a user attempts to view a benign file, such as an ordinary PNG file, within a zip archive. TAG says Russia's Sandworm and APT28 threat actors, both attributed to the GRU, have been making use of the flaw, along with China's APT40, also known as Island Dreams, The threat actors use phishing emails to deliver malicious zip archives containing the exploit. Malwarebytes describes an ongoing malvertising campaign that's using several improved techniques to evade detection. The campaign impersonates the website for Notepad++, a text editor for Windows. The researchers say the threat actors are successfully applying evasion techniques that bypass ad verification checks, and allow them to target certain types of victims. With a reliable malware delivery chain in hand, malicious actors can focus on improving their decoy pages and craft custom malware payloads. 
Malvertising can be insidious. Who doesn't basically trust ads, after all? Some of them we like a lot. Our sponsors, for example. Or the Dr. Rick ads for insurance companies. Sure, sometimes ads can be irritating, but they're so much a part of the background that we take them for granted. As Dorothy Sayers used to say years ago, it pays to advertise. And some of the ads she wrote in the 1920s are still in use today. A cyber criminal using the name Gollum has dumped more data stolen from 23andMe onto breach forums. TechCrunch reports that the company is investigating the authenticity of the claimed leak, which Gollum says includes data from the wealthiest people living in the U.S. and Western Europe. 23andMe says its systems weren't compromised with malware or left open through a security lapse, but rather that the attackers gained access through credential stuffing. Slashnet outlines QR code phishing, or quishing, as some people insist on calling it, noting that users should treat QR codes with the same wariness they'd use when clicking a regular URL. Slash next cautions, traditional security filters, including Microsoft SafeLinks and other URL rewriting solutions, often focus on URLs. By using QR codes instead, attackers can sidestep these filters, making their phishing attempts more likely to succeed. Slashnet adds, QR codes are used in various contexts, such as marketing campaigns, ticketing systems, and contactless payments. This wide range of applications provides hackers with numerous opportunities to exploit QR codes for their malicious purposes. And the malice lies in the destination, not the journey. There are many roads to security perdition, and some of them are paved with QR codes. The U.S. National Security Agency and its partners have issued a report outlining guidance to protect against evolving phishing attacks. The Cybersecurity Information Sheet offers some actionable recommendations. Small and medium-sized businesses should be able to turn to good use. Read the whole thing at nsa.gov and search for How to Protect Against Evolving Phishing Attacks. GuidePoint Security's Research and Intelligence Team has released a report looking at ransomware trends in the third quarter of 2023, finding a 15% increase in ransomware attacks compared to the second quarter of 2023 and an 83% year-over-year increase in publicly posted ransomware victims. The surge in posts lends itself to different interpretations. It might be that there's more ransomware out there, of course, but it might also mean that more crooks are posting victims because the victims aren't as ready to pay up as they used to be. By the way, before we leave the topic of cybercrime, we're sometimes asked what to do if you've learned of an attack. We recommend contacting the FBI. If you've got a tip about cybercrime or about some malfeasance in cyber matters, let the Bureau know about it. Blow the whistle to the FBI at tips.fbi.gov. Turning now to the world's two major hybrid wars, members of the Ukrainian Cyber Alliance claim to have gained access to servers used by the Trigona ransomware gang. Bleeping Computer reports that the hacktivists say they exfiltrated all of the data from the threat actor's systems, including source code and database records, and then wiped the servers. The UCA exploited a recently described vulnerability in Atlassian's Confluence data center and server to gain remote access and elevate their privileges to work their damage. A member of the UCA tweeted, 
Welcome to the world you created for others. Trigona is gone. They're still sorting through the data they exfiltrated from Trigona, but if they find the files contain decryption keys, they say they intend to make those publicly available for the victims of Trigona attacks to use in recovering their systems. Trigona is a Russian gang that's operated since at least October of 2022, when its emergence was noted and described by the Malware Hunter team. It functions as a privateer, its criminal activity tolerated and protected by the Russian government, as long as its money-making raids avoid Russian targets and hit adversaries of the Russian state. The Ukrainian Cyber Alliance is a hacktivist auxiliary working in the interest of the Ukrainian government. It began forming in 2014, the year Russia invaded and took Crimea, and has since been officially chartered as a non-governmental organization governed by civic duty to Ukraine. The group's tagline is Disrupting Russian Criminal Enterprises, Both Public and Private, Since 2014. Everybody needs a tagline. It pays to advertise. Zero Fox has a useful account of the ways in which misinformation, false claims made without malicious intent, and disinformation— Intentional lies told with a political purpose are unfolding in the Hamas-Israeli war. Some of the disinformation originates from third parties to the conflict. Zero Fox Intel has identified a notable uptick in anti-Palestinian disinformation from seemingly Indian accounts and anti-Israeli disinformation from seemingly pro-Russian accounts. Bloomberg describes a surge in hacktivism related to the war, some of it a genuine grassroots phenomenon, some of it conducted by state-directed auxiliaries and front groups. A significant number of the front groups appear to be run from Iran. An example of competing narratives has been on prominent display with respect to damage to a Gaza hospital. Both sides had accused the other of a strike against the Al-Ali hospital, with Hamas calling it an Israeli airstrike, and Israel calling it a malfunctioning rocket launched toward Israel by Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Evidence increasingly points to the latter. The U.S. National Security Council tweeted its evaluation of the Al-Ali hospital incident, stating, While we continue to collect information, our current assessments, based on analysis of overhead imagery, intercepts, and open-source information, is that Israel is not responsible for the explosion at the hospital in Gaza yesterday. And finally, we've seen a lot of attention paid to open-source intelligence in the two ongoing hybrid wars. It's worth remembering the old distinction between intelligence and information. Information is unanalyzed, stuff people say, pictures people show up with. Intelligence is the conclusion drawn critically and rationally with various degrees of confidence from that information. There's been a tendency to take open-source information at face value assuming that the tweeted video of a missile is real, not faked, not pulled from, say, Rainbow Six Siege video game screenshots. To regard raw, unanalyzed information from social media feeds, videos, and so on as conclusive ground truth is to misunderstand OSINT. An essay in 404 Media argues that familiar, amplified, blue-checked accounts aren't automatically credible but rather must themselves be subjected to analysis and verification. These sources have contributed greatly to the generation of disinformation and misinformation. So, stay critical, stay safe. 
coming up after the break. On today's Threat Vector, David Moulton speaks with Kate Nonheim, Cyber Risk Management Director at Unit 42, about the new cybersecurity regulations introduced by the SCC. Our own Rick Howard talks with Jen Miller-Osborne about the 10th anniversary of AttackCon. Stay with us. In the complex world of enterprise identity, securing legacy web apps at scale can be daunting. Strata Identity makes it simple. With Strata, you can effortlessly integrate non-standard apps with any identity service, like MFA or SSO, with zero coding and zero hassle. Designed by identity architects for identity architects, Strata works with every vendor, standard, and app architecture. This means your apps can now speak modern protocols and integrate seamlessly with your chosen identity services. From securing on-prem web apps to migrating away from outdated identity providers or consolidating them, Strata helps you keep your complex access policies as you modernize your identity infrastructure and get rid of technical debt. Join leading organizations like 3M, Dallas County, and CIBC in securing your apps with Strata. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity security priorities, and receive a complimentary pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And now, a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks, and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Welcome to Threat Vector, a segment where Unit42 shares unique threat intelligence insights, new threat actor TTPs, and real-world case studies. Unit 42 has a global team of threat intelligence experts, incident responders, and proactive security consultants dedicated to safeguarding our digital world. I'm your host, David Moulton, Director of Thought Leadership for Unit 42. In today's episode, I'm going to be talking with Kate Nonheim about the new SEC rules. Kate is a Cyber Risk Management Director at Unit 42 with over 15 years experience in technology solutions delivery and a decade of expertise in cybersecurity. The information provided on this podcast is not intended to constitute legal advice. 
All information presented is for general informational purposes only. The information contained may not constitute the most update, legal, or interpretive compliance guidance. Contact your own attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. Kate, thanks for joining me today on Threat Vector. I want to start us off with a really simple question. What is the SEC? I'm really glad you started there, David. So the SEC is essentially the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, which is an independent agency that was established in 1934, really after the stock market crash of 1929 and the resulting Great Depression. It oversees multiple functions related to the securities market. So things like enforcement of laws, regulation, registration of securities, reporting, investor protection, and rulemaking. The agency helps create a level playing field and ensures transparency and protects the interests of investors. What are SEC rules, Kate? Yes. So SEC final rules are legally binding regulations released to enforce securities laws. Can you explain the rationale between the SEC's decision to introduce cyber regulations at this time? The SEC chair, Gary Gensler, said that currently many public companies provide cybersecurity disclosure to investors. But he said, I think companies and investors alike would benefit if this disclosure were made in a more consistent, comparable, and decision-useful way through helping to ensure that companies disclose material cybersecurity information. How will these regulations affect reporting and disclosure requirements for publicly traded companies? Yeah, so there's several requirements for publicly traded companies. The first is that the new Form 8K Item 1.05 will require registrants to disclose any cybersecurity incident they determine to be material and describe the material aspects of the nature, scope, and timing of the incident, as well as the material impact or reasonably likely material impact of the incident on the registrant. Uh, This really must be done within four business days of determining that an incident is material. There will be another requirement through new regulation SK item 106, which will require registrants to describe their processes, if any, for assessing, identifying, managing material risks from cybersecurity threats, as well as whether any risks from cybersecurity threats, including as a result of any previous cybersecurity incidents, have material affected or are reasonably likely to material affect the registrant. And then Form 6K will be amended to require foreign private issuers to furnish information on material cybersecurity incidents that they make or are required to make public or otherwise disclose in a foreign jurisdiction to any stock exchange or to security holders. Are there specific industries or sectors that will be more heavily affected by these regulations? Why is that? Yes, David. So there are definitely industries that will be impacted more greatly by the final rule. Any industries that have high numbers of cybersecurity incidents will be more heavily affected. Those are things like publicly traded companies and industries like manufacturing, finance, professional services, healthcare services, energy, and utilities. And then any publicly traded companies and industries that are not highly regulated or subject to compliance requirements may also be affected because those industries will have to scramble to develop their cyber risk management programs quickly. What steps should organizations take to ensure compliance with the new cyber regulations? And what are the potential consequences of non-compliance? For many publicly traded companies, they'll have to start reporting in December material cybersecurity incidents. So organizations should first devote resources to identifying a playbook for how this is done. Because cobbling together the appropriate procedures from separate policies and groups is going to be prohibitive if an incident does occur. Uh, Following this organization subject to the rule should immediately perform a gap assessment against the new requirements to understand uh, where they fall, either through a self-assessment or independent assessment. And then when they've identified those gaps, they need to implement corrective actions through a workflow system and set due dates so the remediations are really completed in a timely manner. 
These corrective actions are likely going to include changes to policy and procedures, process creation, materiality analysis processes, and SEC reporting processes. And then once the remediations are complete, the company should perform a reassessment to make sure they've closed all the gaps. How do these regulations align with existing cybersecurity standards or frameworks such as NIST or ISO? The new regulations align well with the frameworks at a high level in that both NIST and ISO require risk management programs are in place. For example, NIST maintains the NIST RMF or risk management framework, and that's a comprehensive approach to risk management. But NIST also maintains Special Publication 853, Revision 5, which is Security and Privacy Controls for Information Systems and Organizations. ISO 27001 and 27002 also have nods to risk management, such as requirements for information security risk assessments and treatments, as well as general risk management requirements. Kate, looking ahead, what trends or developments in cybersecurity regulation should we be watching out for in the near future? I'm really interested to see what comes of the push for harmonization of cybersecurity frameworks. Due to an increasingly crowded field of laws and regulations with respect to cybersecurity standards, on July 19, 2023, the Office of the National Cyber Director, or ONCD, released a request for information, or RFI, asking for public comment on opportunities for and challenges to harmonizing federal cybersecurity regulations. An effort to harmonize competing requirements and assessments is long overdue, so this focus has the potential to be really beneficial. I'm very interested to see what comes along with that. And this SEC rule is just one of a number of efforts in the U.S. and around the globe where policymakers are expecting to do more on their cybersecurity posture. Many of these recent regulatory efforts and proposals focus on two similar buckets, cyber incident reporting and cyber risk management plan. Hey, thanks for joining me today on Threat Vector. This conversation has been a great reminder of how integral security has become for every organization. If you're interested in going deeper on this topic, join the Unit 42 experts on November 9th for a webinar on the proposed SEC rules. A link will be in the show notes. The title of that webinar is The Ransomware Landscape, Threats Driving the SEC Rule and Other Regulations. We'll be back on the CyberWire in two weeks. In the meantime, stay secure, stay vigilant. Goodbye for now. We hope you enjoyed this week's Threat Vector segment. We're hoping to gather some insights from you, our audience, and how you'd like to shape future Threat Vector segments. Would you take three minutes or so to help us out? There's a link on today's show notes to our brief survey. Please share your thoughts. Rick Howard recently got together with Jen Miller Osborne, Senior Principal Research Scientist at NetWitness, and Adam Pennington, the current lead for MITRE ATT&CK. Here's their conversation. Anyone that has ever heard me talk knows that I'm a gigantic fan of the MITRE ATT&CK framework. It features prominently in my book, Cybersecurity First Principles, a reboot of strategy and tactics, and I always dedicate a slide or two to the subject whenever I'm giving a presentation to a security crowd. Well, MITRE is hosting ATTACCON 4.0 at their company headquarters in McLean, Virginia on 24 and 25 October, and to celebrate the 10-year anniversary of releasing the ATT&CK framework to the masses, they are bringing back most of the original team to give their perspective on why they created it, how it connects to the Lockheed Martin Kill Chain model and the Department of Defense's Diamond model, 
how the InfoSec community has adopted it as the de facto repository for open source intelligence and what the future might hold for the framework in the next 10 years. I sat down with Jen Miller Osborne, who just recently stepped down as the Palo Alto Network's Deputy Intelligence Director for Unit 42, and Adam Pennington, the current lead for MITRE ATT&CK. I started by asking Jen how she got started with MITRE ATT&CK back in the day. It was just a natural fit for my skills. It was a technical analysis project that also needed some language skills. As someone who was a Mandarin translator previously for the government, I had a lot of the skills to kind of dive in. And I found what we were doing and the data that we had absolutely fascinating. It's still one of my favorite things that I've ever worked on. I, I, oh, I will always miss it. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's paint the picture, Adam, right? So before MITRE ATT&CK framework, what were we all doing as Intel analysts that prompted us to build something like the framework? What, what were we all doing before? So we had um, high-level models that we were using uh, pretty effectively and looking at sort of the overall threat picture. So we had things like the diamond model, if we were looking to do attribution, sort of pulling together the different aspects of an adversary, or the cyber kill chain, if we were looking for things like uh, gap analysis, sort of for the high-level stages for an attack. But we were doing a series of red and blue team exercises internally. I, I think it's back before we were really using the word purple teaming, where... Uh, there was this need to be able to get into a bit more granularity. So telling a red team, do this kill chain step or do this point of a red of the diamond model. It's not enough detail for a red team to really even sort of form a plan. You know, it's something they can model their work to, but it's not sort of, you know, a great use case for some of those existing models. And so as, as Jen said, we had this great data source we had a um, bunch of insight from honeypots into specific behaviors that uh, mostly state actors had been doing over periods of time. Uh, I had worked with Jen on the analysis of that data, and then they were able to take it and start extracting out those uh, finer-grained techniques, what became techniques in attack, in order to describe those uh, much more close-in behaviors. Jen, do you remember the adversary campaign, the, the initial one that you started with? Is it still around or is it an old one that no one remembers anymore? It is still around. It does not have the same name anymore, but the actors are still around. Every now and then we'll see kind of a blast from the past with some of the malware that we discovered and named over the course of, you know, the last nine years at Unit 42, and we won't have seen it for years. And it'll be, oh, look, it's back. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember the name we used to call it? Scarlet Mimic. Was Scarlet the Mimic. One. I remember those guys. Yeah, I totally remember them. Um, Adam, coming back to you, I, we all forget that back before you guys standardized the language, both uh, English language and machine readable language, right, that most of the security vendors on the planet had their own version of how to describe things. So, you know, security vendor A would be talking about one adversary campaign. Security vendor B might be talking about the same the same group or the same campaign strategy or techniques, but nobody knew because they all used different language. They all had different names for it. And so it took the 
community, oh, you know, gigantic amount of effort just to figure out what was going on. So this is the big innovation, right, for MITRE ATTACK that allows us to all speak the same language. I, I think getting it out there was, was probably the biggest innovation. And that, you know, so there were other people that were doing work looking at uh, categorizing these threats, doing their own internal pieces where they were, you know, coming up with names for behaviors. Uh, and so, you know, Jen and her team created the original TTP sheet, you know, the original Excel spreadsheet all the way back in 2013. So we're, this year we're celebrating <laughs> the 10th anniversary. It's but your it's fault, Jen, that we still use spreadsheets to track adversaries. Okay. <laughs> to be fair, Blake was equally culpable on the spreadsheet thing, but I everything's a spreadsheet. <laughs> it's still crazy to me that it's, yeah, how insane it went over 10 years, given how hard we had to fight. It has been a fun ride. I, mean, I don't think any of us predicted. I Just the, the intelligence-driven nature where it came from, from real data at the beginning – We've said that out in public in the past. Most people actually don't catch it that, you know, it was was from this real real honeypot data where Jen was doing the, the really hard analysis on these uh, very long reports getting into every single activity that these actors were doing. Uh, some of those reports are pretty insane that uh, were the pre- precursor to attack. And it's just I'm absolutely thrilled to have the four original creators coming back to join us next month. Blake Strom was the original lead. And then the creators along with Blake were Jen Miller-Osborne, uh, Eric Sheasley, and Brad Crawford. And then uh, moderating the panel is going to be somebody who came into MITRE right around the tax original public release, Katie Nichols. I'm, I'm super excited about the 10th anniversary panel that Jen's going to be a part of as, as one of those creators. You know, I'm it's going to be part of a TACCON where I get to step back, sit in the audience, and just enjoy. That's Rick Howard speaking with Jen Miller-Osborne and Adam Pennington. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at cyberwire at n2k.com. Your feedback helps us ensure we're delivering the information and insights that help keep you a step ahead in the rapidly changing world of cybersecurity. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like The CyberWire are part of the daily intelligence routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, as well as the critical security teams supporting the Fortune 500 and many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. 
N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Iben. Our mixer is Trey Hester with original music by Elliot Peltzman. The show was written by our editorial staff. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.